0: Well, if you can't tell, it's another exciting morning here at Living Water Church, as we have three more people being baptized this morning. And while we didn't plan this, uh, this morning's text is about baptism. It's the one time here in First Peter that Peter mentions baptism, and, and like I said, I didn't plan it, but in the Lord's providence, this is where we find ourselves Before we baptize anyone here at Living Water Church, though, you should know that the elders conduct what we call a baptism interview with those who wish to be baptized. And we do this to make sure that the people who are being baptized have an understanding of the gospel before we actually baptize them. And each of the individuals who will be baptized later this morning, have undergone careful examination by the elders here to make sure that they, they understand the gospel. But let me put a hypothetical situation before you, a, even a probable situation that the elders could encounter, but something you might experience too. If someone, hypothetically, not our baptism candidates that, that are going to be baptized later, but if someone were to, to be interested in baptism and they came to you, maybe it's your kid or, or another person here in the church, and they said, I want to be baptized so that I can be saved, I wonder how you would respond to them. Or if someone asks you, if baptism saves, what would you say? Well, you might emphatically respond by saying that baptism doesn't save a person. The only thing that can save a person is faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's what you would say, you would be right. The scriptures are so clear to this end. John 3.16, we all love it and we all know it. It says, for God so love the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or take Romans 3, 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. We could go on and on this morning, but the scriptures are so clear to this end that a person is justified, that is, they're made right with God by faith. And faith alone is. So what must a person do, humanly speaking, to be saved? They must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it might trouble some of us to hear what Peter has to say in this morning's text about baptism. Writing to these suffering Christians in exile, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, this makes me want to just pull out my hair what are you saying, Peter? What are you telling us when you tell us that baptism now saves you? If this wasn't written by an apostle who was being carried along by the Holy Spirit, we might be quick to dismiss Peter as one who's just had a poor choice of words at best, or at worst, you might even think that he has just committed a heresy in denying the gospel of grace. And to make matters more difficult for us this morning, This isn't the only scripture that seems to suggest that baptism somehow saves a person. You can look at Acts 2.38. Peter again now preaching there at Pentecost said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul again in recounting the words of Ananias when he heard the gospel, recounts it and says, Ananias speaking to Paul and Now, why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? So the question remains, does baptism save you? This is the question I want us to consider this morning from our text. But to better understand what Peter is saying, we need to see how 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22 fits in with what's going on here in this letter. Remember, Peter's writing to these exiles, these suffering Christians, and he's telling them to look forward to the hope that they have when when Christ will come again, that their suffering will at one point come to an end when he returns to, to punish the wicked and rescue the righteous. But in the meantime, in their time in exile, Peter has been telling the church how they are to conduct themselves in their exile. Though Christians live in a world that is hostile toward them, Peter calls us to live in such a way so as to be salt and light in the world, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And what this looks like, Peter goes on to describe, is by submitting to those in authority, even those who are in authority, who are ungodly, 1 Peter two thirteen and 14, and even further beyond that. And when those who are evil do what is evil to us, though we wouldn't deserve it, We aren't to react with evil for evil. We're not to return evil for evil, but we're supposed to return good for evil, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 9. So Peter instructs us how we are to conduct ourselves in this time while we are in exile, while we are hated by those who are in the world. And so now we're in the section of 1 Peter where he turns from giving us instruction, how to conduct ourselves, now he turns to comfort us in our exile. And that's where this text is located. In the midst of our suffering here for righteousness sake, Peter tells us that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Chapter three, verse 17. He goes on to show us how Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous in verse 18. And then after that, he shows us how Noah is an example of one who suffered for righteousness sake in verse 20, which brings us to our text this morning. And what we need to understand is Peter is not just launching into a random theological argument about baptism. That's not the point of Peter here in this text. Rather, Peter's aim is to comfort Christians who are suffering for righteousness' sake. If all we take away from this text this morning is more information about baptism and more arguments to to divide about over with one another, then we'll have entirely missed Peter's point. And it would be really easy to miss that point because this text is, well, troubling to some, to say the least. But this is not Peter's aim. His aim is for our comfort, and so I hope that's what you walk away with this morning. But to understand what he's talking about, I want us to look a little bit more closely now at verse 20, because verse 20 is very closely related to what we see in our text, because he tells us that baptism corresponds to something in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, and he's reaching back to what he just said in verse 20, and Tate preached about that last week, so let me just read it, and I'll come back to it later in the sermon. For now, verse 20, Peter says, Because they formerly did not obey the word, that's the wicked in the days of Noah, they did not obey the word when God's patience waited for them in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Now, this text is confusing, but let me just point out three things that Peter's highlighting for us from, from verse 20 here. One, the wicked did not obey God. And this is very similar to what Peter's audience would have been experiencing in their day. And it's very similar to what we experience in our day. The wicked do not obey the word of God. Two, God was patient with the wicked in the day of Noah. For years, the people continued in their sin. And it seemed as if God wasn't going to do anything about it. And so too, similarly for Peter's original audience and for us today, it might seem as if God has forgotten the wicked and not just the wicked, but forgotten the righteous. But Peter points out that God was being patient while Noah, the man of faith, built the ark, which leads us to number three. Once the time of God's patience was over, only a few people, that is the people of faith, were saved from the watery wrath of God. And they were saved from that wrath through the ark. Which leads us to wonder how this might apply to us today and how Peter, how it applies to his audience as well. How is it that we are saved? And Peter, that's where he launches from. This is what he tells us in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that is the flood, God's wrath against the wicked and the ark that saved the people of faith. Baptism now saves you. So as Peter's saying then from this text that if you want to be saved from the wrath of God, then what you need to do is come forward this morning and jump in the baptismal and be baptized. Is that what he's saying? Is the baptismal water able to cleanse our sinful flesh so that we are acceptable in the sight of God? No, absolutely not. And here we see the great danger that can be had if we would rip Scripture out of its context. We need to keep reading because Peter is so clear about what he's saying. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Peter here is making himself so clear. As if he knows that he's come right up against justification by faith alone, by even suggesting that baptism might save you. So here's what I want us to see. The mere act of being baptized will not save anyone. And when I say mere act, I mean the simply the, the, the act of going into the water and being submerged into the water and being brought out of the water. That act by itself does not save anyone The immersion into water is sure to clean the dirt from the body, Peter tells us, but merely going through the motions of baptism does not cleanse a person of their sin. Let me repeat myself. The outward act of baptism does not cleanse a person of their sins. Now, there are a number of church traditions that teach what is called baptismal regeneration. And if you don't know what regeneration means, it simply is the radical renewal of a person's inner being. And this renewal is a work of God's spirit. That's what regeneration means. Now, there's all kinds of different views on baptismal regeneration. Some who believe it happens at at infancy when they baptize infants. Others believe it happens after a profession of faith, but they still need to be put into the water and brought out of the water to be be regenerated. So there's a wide spectrum of, of different teachings on this. But Peter here shows us that going into the water does not renew a person. Simply going into the water doesn't make a person clean of anything other than dirt. So if this is our understanding of what is going on in baptism, that we are being regenerated when we go into the water and brought out of the water, Peter, he lays that to to rest. That is not what happens at baptism. If a person goes into the water hoping to be freed from the power of sin through their baptism, they might try to argue here from 1 Peter 3.21 that that the baptismal waters would save, but if they would just keep reading and understand what he's saying, all that's going to happen is dirt will be removed from the body. But such a thing will not appease the wrath of God against the wicked. So to keep us from making too much out of the physical act of baptism, Peter is telling us it will only remove the dirt from your body, but it will not save you. Calvin, in his own protest against the Roman Catholic Church, was incredibly clear on the importance of what is happening on baptism. Hear him out for just a moment. For those who believe that baptism itself is what washes a person of their sin Calvin says, moreover, when we speak of the sacraments, that of baptism and the Lord's Supper, when we speak of the sacraments, two things must be considered, the sign and the thing itself. In baptism, the sign is water, but the thing is the washing of the soul by the blood of Christ and the mortifying of the flesh. Notice those two parts that Calvin points out that happens there in the sacrament. There's the sign, that being the the water that, that people are immersed into. But the thing itself that the sign is pointing to is the the washing that happens by the blood of Christ and the mortifying of the sinful flesh that is freeing us from the penalty and power of the sin is the language we use oftentimes. So understand, water is just a sign, but it is not the substance that cleanses. It's not the actual reality in and of itself. I like to talk about this. I talked about it last week. It's like a wedding ring as a sign of marriage. When I was young, my dad would would struggle to take off his wedding ring because he had an arthritic, arthritic knuckle. But if he was able to get the wedding ring off his finger and hand it to me as he did as a kid, I liked to try to put that big old ring on my finger. But it was a sign of his marriage and simply putting it on my finger did not make me married. So too, simply going through the act of baptism does not actually cleanse a person of their sins. Now, let me give a few points of application to this point from a a Baptist's point of view. Now, I know that there are a number of families here who hold to infant baptism, and, and godly men and women have disagreed on this issue for hundreds of years. Some of my greatest heroes even baptized infants. And while I think these verses are a wonderful proof text for believers' baptism, this isn't Peter's point, and so I'm not going to turn my sermon or this text here into a, uh, a defense for believers' baptism. That's not what I'm going to do this morning, but what I do want us to see is that baptism does not save a person. And so for those who, those parents especially, or anyone who else would want their loved one to be baptized so they might be saved through the washing of water, understand that you might want your child to be saved. I I want my kids to be saved. But if you try to twist your child's arm, hoping that they will be saved if they they get up in front of the church and be baptized, understand, your kids will not be saved through such an act. I I do want my kids to be saved. I pray for them daily to this end, that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ But if our children, or any of us for that matter, go into the waters, apart from faith, they or we will not be saved. Now for those who might feel the pressure to get baptized, even this morning, you see maybe some of your friends are getting baptized and you feel like, oh, that would be great if I could be like them and be baptized just as they are. If you feel that kind of peer pressure to be baptized, or even misunderstand what is required of salvation, and you think, in order to be saved, I need to go to the water, so therefore I'm going to get baptized so I might be saved to that end. Understand, the water will not change you. It will not free you from your sinful flesh. External religion does not save, be it through the empty motions of baptism, or all the other myriad of work that we might try to do in order to earn God's favor. All these works that are done apart from faith, Make us nothing more than whitewashed tombs, all clean on the outside, but on the inside, full of unclean things. Now that was the easy part of my sermon. Up until now, all I've told you is what Peter didn't mean when he talked about baptism that saves. Now we need to try to understand what Peter is saying here in this shocking sentence. And as a Protestant, I have wrestled with these words over the last week. I've heard someone say, with regards to this text, that Baptists don't dance. But we sure do dance around this text. And it's for good reason, too. The Reformers, they fought hard to correct the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And so we want to draw clear lines between us and those who would teach that baptism precedes regeneration. But we really do need to listen to what Peter is saying here, even us Protestants, because he's very clear on something. And so I'm going to I'm going to read the text again, and I have underlined phrases here, and I want you to just hear the underlying phrases. I'm not trying to rip it apart or take it out of context, but it just gets to the point. Baptism, Peter says, now saves you as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It saves as an appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen again to what Calvin said about baptism in response to the error Of the Catholic Church regarding baptism. I already read it, but I'm going to read a little bit more now. When we speak of the sacraments, two things are to be considered, the sign and the thing itself. In baptism, the sign is water, but the thing is the washing of the soul by the blood of Christ and the mortifying of the flesh. Calvin continued, what then ought we to do? not separate what has been joined together by the Lord. We ought to acknowledge in baptism a spiritual washing. We ought to embrace therein the testimony of the remission of sin and the pledge of our own renovation, and yet so as to leave Christ his own honor and also to the Holy Spirit so that no part of our salvation should be transferred to the sign, which is the water. So while Calvin here is correcting the errors of the Catholic Church and trying to ascribe too much to the waters of baptism, I think us Protestants would do well to to hear Calvin out as well. Because many Protestants, including myself, emphasize the sign of baptism, and the Lord's Supper for that matter, out of a desire to try to avoid the the errors of Rome. And so we want to draw that line and make that line very clear. But in doing so, we often throw the baby out with the bathwater and that wasn't intended as a pun, (laughs) we easily forget that there is a spiritual reality connected to this sign of baptism. And while most of us would prefer to avoid the language that Peter is using altogether, we must see that Peter's language is biblical, and it points to a wonderful truth that is for our encouragement and comfort if we understand it rightly. So listen again to what he says. Baptism now saves you, he says, as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So this is what I want us to see. This is my interpretation now of it. Baptism saves in that it signifies repentance. Baptism saves in that it signifies repentance. I think that's what Peter has in mind when he speaks of an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal is simply a a plea, an urgent request. This is an appeal to God that I'm calling repentance. And repentance and this appeal to God is not a matter of just going through the motions of, of being put into water, but it's a matter of the heart. If when a person is baptized, And in that moment, as they are being submerged into the water, they are pleading to God to clean their conscience. If this is happening, it is owing to God's grace to change a person from the inside out. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't just a thing that we do. Certainly we do repent, but if we repent of anything, it is owing to the fact that God is gracious to us and he has changed our heart to to look at once was what we loved, what we craved that caused us to say, no more. I want Christ. I want what is good and righteous and pleasing in the sight of God. How does a person then come to repent of sin? Well, first, because of grace, they become aware of their sins and the seriousness of that sin or those sins. And because of their awareness to it, they then feel a sense of sorrow, even a sickness because of their sins. And their sin sickness only increases when they come to realize that they have sinned against the holy and righteous judge who knows every sinful deed, every sinful wicked word, and yes, even every evil thought. I wonder if you've experienced that kind of sorrow for sin. I wonder even now if you still experience this kind of lamenting over your sin when you realize what you have done, perhaps even to the point in which you are brought to tears. King David was a man who had a guilty conscience because of his sin. Listen to what he said in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. David felt the weight of God's hand against him when he kept his sin a secret. He felt conviction of sin. And so he continues in verse five, I acknowledge my sins to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice what David didn't do. He didn't make excuses for his sins. He didn't shift the blame of his sins on the woman He didn't try to hide the sins, but rather he brought his sins into the light. He confessed his sins, and the result was that the Lord forgave him of his sins. And so, David, he looks to you and me this morning, and he invites us into that same thing that he received in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the right time when you may be found. And that time is now before judgment comes, that time is now that we would offer prayer of confession, supplication to the Lord, that we would plead with him that he would forgive us. And he says, surely the rush of great waters shall not reach them. And you can hear in there that that flood language that you see there from Noah, the flood waters of God's wrath against the wicked or perhaps even the waters that destroyed Pharaoh and his army. He says, those who call out to the Lord, who offer prayer at the right time, will be saved from the watery wrath of God. So to be convicted of sin, such as David was, is nothing short of God's grace when he puts his hand heavily upon you to cause you to feel remorse for sin. Because the natural man does not hate his sin. The natural man has no interest in turning away from his sin. The natural man has no desire to cast off his sins. The natural man has no conviction for his sin that would cause him to cry out to the Lord. One of the most frightening passages of Scripture that can describe what can happen here before we reach the judgment seat of God is in Romans 1, at the very end of Romans 1. It's a long passage that I have before us, but I'm going to just fly through it and highlight the, the repetitive phrase that we see here. In verse 24 first, he says, this is Paul, he says, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's God's wrath against the wicked who do not repent of sin. He, he gives them up to their own sinful desires. And again in verse 26, he says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, women exchanging their natural relations that are contrary to nature. And men likewise, he gives up to This this lust of the flesh. And then in verse 28, it happens again. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Understand what's going on here. God is giving us up over to our natural sinful flesh if we continue to resist God. Our hearts become harder and harder and harder to that which is good and right and pleasing to God, so much so that by the time you reach verse 32, because they were so hardened against God, because God gave them over to the desires of their sinful flesh, it says they not only do such wicked things, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so such a person who loves the things of the flesh and gives approval to that which is evil in the sight of God, such a person is not fit for baptism. And this is the very same description of what we see happening even in Jesus' day when John was baptizing. We hear from Mark 1, 4, and 5 that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But then we pick up in Rome, Matthew, excuse me, 3, 5 through 9. And Jesus there in Jerusalem and all Judea, they were coming there to the Jordan and going on to him to be baptized. And they were confessing their sins. But in verse 7 it says, But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John is showing us here who baptism is for. Baptism is not for those who presume to have a connection, a physical connection through their father, who is the man of faith, namely Abraham. Rather, he shows us that baptism is for those who are poor in spirit. Baptism is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Baptism is for those who are convicted of their sins. And in that conviction, appeal to God to cleanse them of their conscience. So consider this this morning. Have you Experience this kind of conviction over your sins against God? And do you continue to feel such a heavy weight when there is sin that you have hidden and kept to a secret that you have yet to confess to God? If so, if you do feel that heavy hand of God against you when you are in sin, It is owing to the fact that what John said to those Pharisees has come to pass in your life, that he has raised these stones up for children of Abraham. For Ezekiel prophesied this, the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what God has done in us if we feel convicted of sin. He makes us not like just a cold stone that feels nothing, but the heart of flesh that rightly ought to feel convicted of sin. And this is what baptism points to. It's signifying that we are appealing to God to to give us a good conscience. Let's continue on in the text again in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the second point underneath, point number two. Baptism saves in that it signifies faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, baptism is not just an outward expression of faith in Jesus Christ. It's not merely that. but it it points to the reality of what is actually happening inside us, that we actually are embracing Jesus Christ as our own, trusting in him, not just as being dead and buried, but even having been raised from the grave. So baptism doesn't just look to the water for cleansing. It looks to the sacrifice that Jesus made on our account and then to his victorious resurrection from the grave. And only then, when we look to Jesus Christ for cleansing, can we have a clean conscience. If we look to the water, we will be just as guilty of sin. But when we look to Jesus Christ, his victorious resurrection over sin and the grave, we have this confidence that our sins have been washed away. Even John's baptism of repentance, it pointed forward to Christ. And so John, he said, when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is Christ, not baptism, that washes us clean. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So in our baptism, Those who have been baptized or those who are about to be baptized or those who hope to be baptized one day. We look not to the water for cleansing, but we look to Christ and his work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That was just back up in verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And if that's where the story ended, well, then we would have reason to perhaps doubt the sufficiency of his death for us. But that's not the end of it. We look not just to the cross, but verse 21 continues. We look not just to that, but even to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see there at the resurrection the very proof that sin and death have been defeated. And then we look even beyond just his resurrection. We look to his ascension into heaven, where he rules the right hand of God. Verse 22, describing Jesus, Jesus who has gone into heaven And this is the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Understand what he's saying here. Our faith is not merely in a crucified Savior. Our faith is in our crucified Savior who is also our conquering King. Because of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his rule right now, where he lives and he's seated to the right hand of God, we can be confident that our appeal to God for a clean, good conscience will be answered. So let's try to put these two things together. The appeal to God for a a good conscience and the the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. These are the things that should accompany our, our baptism. These two must go together if our baptism is to have any significant value in cleansing us of our, our guilty conscience. Earlier I mentioned our baptism interviews that we conduct here. And uh, young people can often be intimidated when they go into those interviews thinking it's something like perhaps a job interview or like a trivia test on their knowledge of the Bible or even an interrogation. But listen, the elders, when they do those interviews, they're not trying to trick kids or even any, anyone else for that matter in those interviews as if to stump them to go, ha-ha, you don't know the answer. That's not the point. When we do those interviews, we're simply looking for a credible profession of faith. We're considering this. Is there any evidence that this person has repented of their sins? And is there any evidence that this person is trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins? If yes to both of these things, then we're so excited because they should be baptized. But if they look to the waters for salvation, then they're not ready. Now, let me wrap up two loose ends regarding baptism that this text might bring to mind. And one is the the timing of baptism. We here at Living Water have a tendency to to delay baptism for all kinds of reasons. Maybe it's because the baptismal isn't on the the platform and it's not until September that we baptize. Maybe it's because we're afraid of getting up in front of the congregation or even as parents, maybe we doubt the genuineness of our children's faith. And so we want to wait until we see all the good fruit and perhaps even perfection from our children before we, we go, yeah, I think it's time for you to get baptized. But if you're, if you're delaying baptism, but all the while you're feeling convicted of sin and you're looking to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then understand you should not wait any longer. You should not put it off, but instead you should be baptized. Talk with the elders. We would love to talk with you about it. If you are convicted of sin and looking to Christ, you should be baptized because baptism is one of the first acts of obedience that Christ calls us to do if we have chosen to follow him. But let me clarify just as well that if you've already been baptized, and that in that baptism, you were repenting of sin and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you continue to feel convicted of sin, you shouldn't be rebaptized. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Peter's saying here as well. Baptism is, hap- is what we do just once, there at the very beginning of our faith. It's the sacrament that introduces us into the body of the church. While the Lord's Supper is the ongoing sacrament that we keep until we are with Christ in glory. But if you believe in Jesus Christ and have not been baptized, then you should certainly be baptized. The second thing I want to just mention is the necessity of baptism. We might hear this and then ask, must I be baptized if I want to be saved? No. Of course not. Humanly speaking, all that is required of us for salvation is faith. And faith alone and not baptism. The thief on the cross who believed in Jesus did not get baptized. And yet, Jesus told him that that day he would be with him in paradise. But let me say something about the thief on the cross. We should not draw our theology of baptism from that one isolated text. And you should not look at that as a reason for why you are not baptized and saying, see, I don't need to do it. Must I be baptized to be saved? No. No. But let me return that question with another question. If you're you're wondering if you must be baptized to save, then I would ask why haven't you been baptized if you do, in fact, believe in Jesus Christ? Jesus calls all of his disciples to be baptized as the mark of identifying themselves with him. You see, Christ, he represented us there on the cross, he did not despise the shame but he took upon himself all our sin. And now we get to represent Christ in his glory by identifying with him through baptism. So if you're avoiding baptism for whatever reason it might be when you are in fact looking to Christ and trusting him and repenting of your sin and you have not yet been baptized, then I encourage you, be baptized. This is what the Lord calls us to do. It's a commandment of his and to disobey would be sin. So what though? Tate loves to ask that question. It's so helpful. In all of this, what are we supposed to make sense of this because more than likely most of us here have been baptized. And Peter even assumes here that all of his readers have been baptized as a result of their repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter's not here exhorting the Christians to be baptized. He's not trying to persuade them about their views on baptism. And he's not even trying to inform them about baptism. And we can get so thrown off by the startling statement that baptism somehow might save us that we can miss Peter's point entirely. So to understand the text, we need to see it in light of the preceding verses. And I I hope to make sense of this. Like I said, this is a confusing text, as Tate said last week, and it can be confusing to us as well this morning. So I'm going to try to make it really simple, but... But Peter here is is building his argument from what he said last week. He said this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Let me try to, make us really simple. I don't need to re-preach what Tate preached. But, but he points out a few things now. He, he points out that Christ died for sins so that we might be made righteous. It's the wonderful doctrine that we love here, the wonderful gospel that we believe that the, the wicked get God as a result of grace, Christ, he died so that we might have forgiveness of sins, but then he goes further and demonstrates that in the days of Noah, God pours out his wrath against sinners. Which might make us go, well, what are we supposed to draw from this then? Is it supposed to be comfort or concern? Is it comfort that we're saved or concern that we are among the wicked who are going to be destroyed by the wrath of God and only a few people will be saved? Well, it depends on how you see yourself in light of this text. It depends on whether you are among those who are of the faith, as Noah and his family were, as to whether you can take comfort from this, or whether you are among the wicked who have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you are outside of the ark and under the wrath of God. So it all depends on whether or not you're inside or outside of the ark as to whether or not you are saved from the wrath of God or going to be exposed and under the wrath of God when he pours out that watery wrath in Noah's day. And in our day, it's going to be fire. So then how are we saved? That's the question. How is it that we are to enter into the ark? How is it that we are to enter into this vessel that God has made so that we would be saved from the wrath of God? Answer, the ark in one sense, except Peter isn't suggesting that we move to Kentucky and live inside of that exhibit there. It's the furthest thing from his mind because we do not need a boat to save us from the wrath of God. It wasn't actually the ark that saved Noah. Noah. Though it was, it was not merely the ark. We learn from Hebrews eleven seven. It was faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events that were yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed the ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so Peter has for us set this ark, not a wooden boat, But Jesus Christ and all who are baptized into him will be saved from his wrath on that great and terrible day. And that's what baptism signifies. We are being baptized into Christ. And baptism is for those who have repented of their sins. Baptism is for those who are putting their faith in Christ for the removal and the, the washing of sins. And for those who have done that, they will be saved. And so in conclusion, does baptism save you? Well, that's what I've been trying to answer this whole time. And it's a difficult question to answer with just one word because it all depends on what you mean. If what you mean by baptism saving you is that merely the water save you, then no, baptism will not save you. But if you have been baptized into Christ because you have repented of your sins and you look to him, Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, know this, Christian, you are saved and you will be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the great salvation that you have given us in Christ. And for those who are here even now who continue to harden their hearts against you and have continued to reject Christ, I do pray that you would seize their heart even now, convict them of sin. May your hand lay heavy upon them that would cause their bones to ache. And in that pain, in their mourning over sin, would they look to Christ for salvation, Lord? Would you do that work in our children's hearts, Lord, do that work in, in our, our spouses' hearts if they do not believe. Do that work even in our own hearts, Lord, if there remains any hardness of heart in us. Lord, give us a heart of flesh so that we might repent. Give us a heart of flesh so that we might love you and love Christ and love your spirit more. And Lord, we do thank you for the work that you have started. We thank you for the testimony of those that we're about to hear who are going to be baptized. Lord, would you continue that work in us until? We are with you in glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.